Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. Today, I would like to take you back to my senior year of high school, where around, the Christ, around Christmas time, I received probably one of my favorite gifts uh, throughout my youth and childhood. There, I woke up that Christmas morning, and I have never been in a hurry to get up on Christmas morning. Morning, It's a nice day to sleep in. I'm sure some of you like to get up really, really bright and early to open those gifts. I am not that way. I like to savor in the opportunity to sleep in. And as soon as I finally get out of bed, I make my way as a teenager, I made my way to the living room. And there I would, I would enjoy the time of opening all of those gifts. And this particular Christmas, as a 17-year-old young man, my parents got me a nice Martin guitar. And this guitar was not luxurious, but it was luxurious to me. This guitar wasn't a high-end guitar, but it was a high-end guitar to me. It didn't sound like all of the pros on TV and on the radio, but it was professional to me. And that would be the guitar that I would begin to really learn to play, still trying to learn to play to this day. But that would be the guitar that I would begin to shape all of the framework and understanding and foundation of how to play the chords and the scales and all of the songs that I would eventually come to know to play to this very day. But time went on when I began to realize that my guitar, no matter what I would do to it, no matter what kind of amp I would put it in, it just never sounded like those on the Opry or those on the country music station or on the rock and roll station or even on the Christian stations. And so I began to go to the guitar shop and I finally decided that I was going to upgrade to more of a high-end, luxurious, luxurious guitar. And so I did. And it has been no turning back since then. Today, of course, I'm not coming here to try to preach a message to you of why you should go buy a luxury guitar. But what I am here to do is to simply share that story with you to let you know that why would I take my nice luxury guitar and trade it back in for a starter guitar. And today as we come to Hebrews chapter 9, we see that the emphasis here is the writer of Hebrews is trying to relay the truth. Is, hey, why would you trade in the new greatest covenant back in for the old covenant? And today my, my sermon title is this, the superior covenant. And if I could expound on that sermon title to be this, the superior covenant is the new covenant. Now listen, you can play the old guitar of the Old Testament all you want to and lock yourself into that old covenant, but I'm going to take the new fresh guitar, if you will, and the new covenant that God has given to us and just freely worship God in the way that He has given us in the New Testament revelation. Today, if I could really summarize these 14 verses with, with a thought that really the writer of Hebrews is trying to drive home by the final question in verse 14, and it is this. Redemption in Christ frees us from our dead works to serve the living God. Redemption in Christ frees us 
from our dead works to serve the living God. Today we understand that the, that the New Testament is far superior than the Old Testament because the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And we see here that the writer of Hebrews begins to expound on this thought. And in, in, in these 14 verses, I want to relate to you two thoughts today. The first thought is this. God designed the Old Covenant to be a temporary, imperfect way of picturing Christ's perfection. And then in verses 11 through 14, I want to relate to you this second thought. God designed the sacrifice of Christ to provide us eternal redemption. So really, the first ten verses is all about Christ's perfection, and then about the perfection of Christ, and then the last four verses is all about the redemption we have in Christ. And so today, if you will, for just a few moments, I want to walk us through this passage as we seek to try to understand what the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing to, these, to this Jewish-believing audience. Now, these Jews, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but they are being tempted to go back underneath the Old Testament system. And now listen, you might be tempted to go back to those old ways, but I submit to you that there's no need to go back to those old ways because of the new way we have in Christ. So the first thought is from verses 1 through 10, and it's this. God designed the Old Covenant to be a temporary, imperfect way of picturing Christ's perfection. Let me say that again. God designed the Old Covenant to be a temporary, imperfect way of picturing Christ's perfection. You see, the Old Testament, that whole system, was to reveal the imperfection of man and to reveal the perfection of God, specifically in Christ Jesus. And we see in these first ten verses of this chapter how Christ is pictured. In verses 1 through 5, we see that the earthly tabernacle served as a picture of Christ. Would you look at the first five verses with me? As we understand the perfection of Christ being portrayed in these first ten verses, but specifically the first five right now, look, it says in verse number one, it says, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service. There was a specific God-ordained purpose to everything in the Old Testament. So don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to say that we need to take our lighters and burn the Old Testament. That's not what I'm saying today. What I'm saying is simply this. God had a specific purpose, and that purpose was finally lived out when Jesus fulfilled it all on the cross. And here in verse number one, we see that all of that had a specific God-given purpose. And then it says, and a worldly sanctuary. Now this term worldly, sometimes we think of worldly as ungodly. That is wicked. But in the context here, this is simply meaning that it is earthly. That this, that this sanctuary was not a heavenly sanctuary in glory where God is, but this was an earthly sanctuary, a worldly sanctuary here on this earth. Now I'm afraid that the worldly sanctuaries, that is the earthly sanctuaries, for the vast majority of all humanity, is the only time they'll ever experience worship. It's right here on the earth. Because they don't know Christ as their Savior, and they won't be able to graduate to the heavenly sanctuary. But look at verse 2. Verse two. In fact, in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, we see that the earthly tabernacle is described, and all of the items, the utensils, 
everything that was used, or at least a brief summary here, is what the writer of Hebrews is going to summarize everything that was used in the tabernacle. So in verse number 2, he mentions the tabernacle. In verse number 2, he mentions the candlestick. He mentions the table. He mentions the showbread. He mentions the sanctuary. He mentions the holy of holies in verse number 3. He mentions the golden censer in verse number 4. He mentions the Ark of the Covenant in verse number 4, which held the manna, the Aaron's rod, and the tables of stone. The Ten Commandments. And then in verse number 5, he mentions the mercy seat and the cherubims that sat upon the mercy seat. Now, let's just kind of walk through these things. The earthly sanctuary in, in verse number 1 and 2, or the tabernacle, if you will. Well, the earthly sanctuary, first found in verse number 1. This was a tabernacle that was ordained by the old covenant system that was planned by God, but planned for only an earthly service, as I shared a moment ago. Now, let's look at the tabernacle that was made here in verse 2. This was a tent that was 45 feet long. It was 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. Within this large tent, there were two divisions, two rooms, if you will. A larger room, which was the first part, and that was, that was 15 feet by 30 feet, and it was called the holy place. And behind the second veil, and by the way, a veil was simply a term that was used in the Old Testament for a large curtain. And it was a curtain of separation to separate the holy place from the holy of holies. That smaller room was 15 feet by 15 feet. The lampstand that is mentioned or called the candlestick in the King James. This was... This, this, this setting for the lamps of the tabernacle had a middle stem and six branches that stood in the first part. It was, the, it, was, it was not specified in its size in the mentions in the Old Testament. We have no idea how large or how small it was. But what we do know is it was the only light for given to the people in that setting. And it was made with pure gold. As I was thinking about this candlestick and this and this. This, this light that was used, this lampstand, if you will, I, I, I begin to realize that the New Testament gives us a New Testament revelation on the greatest lampstand or the greatest candlestick that is shining a greater light, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He came in and to this world and he said, I am the light of the world, and we are his light bearers. So let us shine the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Then we see a table is mentioned. This sat at the first part and was made of acacia wood, and it was covered with gold. As you'll see in the Old Testament, God did everything absolutely first class. Everything that was used was made of pure gold after it had wood. And then we see here, this table was three feet long, one and a half feet wide, and two feet three inches high. And it held the 12 loaves of showbread, and each of those loaves of bread represented God's fellowship with the 12 tribes of Israel. Then the sanctuary is mentioned in verse 2. We see that this refers to the first part known as the holy place. That is the larger portion, the larger room in the tabernacle. And then the veil divided it and separated the first part from the holiest of all, and that is called the holy of holies. Then we see the golden altar of incense mentioned in verse 
Number four, oh, the golden censer, as the King James says. This was made of acacia wood again, and as you guessed, it was made with, also covered with pure gold. It was one and a half feet square and three feet high. It stood at the veil before the Holy of Holies and was used to burn incense. This altar would go to signify the greatest altar that would come, and that is the altar of the cross 2,000 years ago. And I'm glad that this altar was made of great wood and laid with pure gold, but I'm thankful that God's sacrifice of His only begotten Son was a, was a first-class sacrifice, and no other sacrifice, no other altar compares. And because of that altar, now we have direct fellowship with God and we can have our sins totally cleansed, as we'll see in verses 11 through 14 about all of that. And then as Jesus was sacrificed, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, we notice that in the Old Testament, in that tabernacle set, uh, setting, that they would, they would offer a sacrifice. And then, then the odor of the sacrifice would go up and God would smell that odor and call it a sweet-smelling savor. And so when Jesus died on the cross, there on that altar, His sacrifice, the fumes, if you will, the smoke, if you will, the smell was a sweet-smelling savor in the nostrils of God the Father. Today, I want you to understand this. That the greatest altar is Jesus Christ. The greatest light is Jesus Christ. The greatest bread is the bread of life in Jesus Christ. The greatest tabernacle is the place of worship we will all get to be in glory in the days to come. But then we see another item that was used. Probably, in my opinion, the most important item in the tabernacle. And that is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was, this shows how holy and how serious God was about worship. Remember in the Old Testament when they were carrying that Ark of the Covenant and, and, and they began to stumble and trip and, 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 and the Ark of the Covenant began to sway and one of the men st stood and touched the Ark in a certain spot that God said, do not touch it. And remember what happened to him? He died. God is serious when it comes to his worship. And the Ark of the Covenant is a place that the full splendor and glory, or as the commentators say, the Shekinah glory of God rested for just a few moments there. This stood inside the Holy of Holies. It was a chest made of acacia wood, as you probably have guessed so far. And as you would guess, it was, made of, it was covered with absolute pure gold. Three feet and three-fourths long, two and one-fourth feet wide, and two and one-fourth feet high. And it had wings for poles. That is, you'd have this big old box, and it would have these poles sticking out where they could carry it on their shoulders. And then inside the ark, we read in verse number four about the manna, about Aaron's rod, and about the tablets of stone. That is the Ten Commandments. We read about all of this. We read about the golden pot that had the manna in Exodus chapter 16. We read about Aaron's rod that budded in Numbers chapter 17. And we read about the golden tablets of stone that God penned with his own finger, the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 25. It's interesting, when we think about the manna in the Old Testament there and the Ark of the Covenant when it was placed in there, we would see that every time Israel would, be, would, would see that manna, they would be reminded of God's provision in the wilderness and their continual 
ungratitude and ungratefulness. Imagine God raining down bread from heaven. That when you look up in the sky, you don't see raindrops falling, but you see bread coming down from heaven. God specifically provided for Israel in, in so many different miraculous ways, and still they were ungrateful. And so this served as a purpose to remind them that God provides for His people even in the midst of their selfish ungratitude. And then Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod was a symbol for God's authority. That is, when a king stands, he has a rod. And we understand that God is our sovereign king. And He is the one who deserves our full, wholehearted allegiance. That rod reminded Israel of their rebellion in the wilderness against God's authority. This year has given us a lot of thought about what the highest level of authority in America is. But let me share this with you. The highest level of authority in the universe is Almighty God. And Almighty God is king. Almighty God is sovereign. He is potentate. And He is the one who rules and reigns this universe. And that rod reminded Israel of the times that they rebelled against God's authority, of how they chided with Moses, how they chided with God, and how they said, we do not want to bow to your authority, God. Let us do our own thing. And then we see the third item here. The tables of stone. The Ten Commandments. This would serve as a reminder to Israel of their failure to keep those commandments and the law. When I think about the manna, when I think about the rod, when I think about the tables of stone, I, I think that I'm just crazy enough to believe that as we read this chapter here, yes, it was all designed to be reminders for Israel, but I'm reminded that, that, that how God has provided for me and I am ungrateful. How God has revealed to me that He is the highest authority in all the earth and, and how sometimes I rebel against His authority and then how He has given us His word and how I failed to keep it in its entirety. And so all this reminds us how we need God's grace, how we need God's mercy. And then we see verse number five. Verse number five speaks about probably the most important part of the Old Testament tabernacle. And that is the mercy seat. This was the ornate stone or the ornate lid, if you will, sorry, for the Ark of the Covenant. This was like a, a lid on top of this ark. And it was made with designs of cherubim upon it. As I think about the cherubims, I think about, you know, how back in the, back in the book of Genesis where, where, where the Garden of Eden was and how man was kicked out of the garden because of their sin and how God placed those cherubims there and how they had, they had, they had swords of fire, if you will. And how many people are trying to find that garden, but I don't know what they would do if they would find it because the, the, they wouldn't get in. In other words, it just symbolizes that, that God is serious about His Word and, and worshiping Him. And here we see that the cherubims are placed upon this ark there to signify that this place is absolute holy. 
that it is that it is the presence of Almighty God, and there the blood of sacrifice was sprinkled upon it. That is the mercy seat for the forgiveness of Israel's sin on the Day of Atonement. Now, now we've studied this back in Exodus chapter twenty-five. We we read about the Day of Atonement. We read about all that. But but as God looked down, I like what one commentator said. They said this: as God looked down into the ark, He saw the symbols of Israel's sin, rebellion, and failures. But when the blood of sacrifice was sprinkled and applied to that mercy seat, the blood of sacrifice covered his sight of the sins of Israel. I want you to know this, that there's no blood of bulls, there's no blood of goats that can cover your sins, but only the blood of Jesus Christ. Only his blood can atone our sins and our wretched imperfections and failures in God's sight. And today we see that the greatest mercy seat was not here in Hebrews 5 or going back to the book of Exodus, but the greatest mercy seat was when Jesus Christ's blood was spilled upon the cross of Calvary so that we could have our sins forgiven. You see, all of this, all of this was done so that the Old Testament Jew, so that the Old Testament believing Jew would be able to recognize the Messiah as the true Messiah. And when Jesus came, they, know, they should have known that in, in Isaiah that the prophet said that, that there will be a, a virgin to conceive and his name will be called Emmanuel. And we read about that in, in Matthew's Gospel. How we read how, how this, this Emmanuel would live amongst men. How they, he would heal those who were... He would do many miracles and he would die on the cross. He would be raised to life again. And all of this would signify that that is the Messiah. Messiah. But unfortunately, the nation of Israel continued to rebel against God's own Messiah. But God is still extending His mercy to all those who will believe in His name. <coughs> and these verses here reveal to us that the earthly tabernacle and all that was in it served as a picture of Christ. You see, we're looking at the perfection of Christ this morning, how God designed the old covenant to be a temporary, imperfect way of picturing Christ's perfection. And then I want you to draw your attention now to verses five, excuse me, verses six through ten. And here in these verses, we're going to see the ministry of the priest served as a picture of the work of Christ. You see, the writer of Hebrews he transitions now to all the details of the tabernacle to the details of the priest. He transitions from the details of the earthly place of worship to the earthly priest who leads the worship. Verse 6, the Bible says, Now when these things were thus ordained, that means appointed by God, He appointed all these things. The priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. So there he'd walk in to that first place, and the writer doesn't go into full detail because of his listening audience, how they understood all these things. And there he would go in and start doing the things that were in, in accordance to the Old Testament laws in Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy. And then in verse number 7, the Bible says, but into the second. Notice the usage here. It speaks about the priest. That is, the people underneath the high priest. They would have access to go into the first room. But the second room was for the high priest. And he went alone. And it's so interesting, he went once a year. He was only allowed in there once a year and only for a brief amount of time. And there he would go in with blood 
And there he would place the blood on the mercy seat to offer for himself and for the heirs of the people. Now, I want you to understand this. We have all sinned. We have all come short of God's glory. We all have errors. We all have flaws. We all have blame at some point in our lives. But the blameless one, the flawless one, the unspotted lamb of God is able to wipe it all away. Verse 8 says, the Holy Spirit of the Holy Ghost signifies that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. Well, as the first tabernacle was yet standing. Then verse 9. Here's how we know all of this was a, a, a picture of Jesus Christ and foreshadowing the things to come by verse 9. It says, which was a figure for the time then present, and which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. You need to understand this. That the old covenant provided a limited access to God. Did you, did you hear the words here? The high priest was only allowed to go into the Holy of Holies where God's presence rested on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant for a little bit of time. And he had to get out of there. He had to get out of Dodge, as they say. He couldn't linger too long or he'd be struck and dead. Now, under the new covenant, God has provided an unlimited access to himself. So that now, you don't have to have the priest go into the first part, and then the high priest to go into the second part. Now, we are all priests after the order, uh, excuse me, we're all priests now, the priest of the believer. And then we have a high priest now, Jesus Christ, has made direct access to where anybody can get to God now. Anybody. And I want you to understand this. I say this respectfully. If there's anybody in this world, Jewish or Gentile, trying to live underneath the Old Testament system, they will not succeed. Because the Old Covenant provided a limited success of sacrifices. Do you ever wonder why the nation of Israel right now does not sacrifice anymore? Why doesn't the priest go into the first part of this tabernacle or the temple in Israel? Why doesn't the high priest march into the Holy of Holies? Why isn't there a large temple anymore? Or in fact, why isn't there a tabernacle that they set up like a tent back in those days in the book of Exodus? If it is so important, why don't they do these things? Why don't they take the turtle doves? Why don't they take the lambs? Why don't they take these animals and offer sacrifices up? Well, I'll tell you why. Because now we understand that those sacrifices were simply a picture of the greatest sacrifice to come. And those sacrifices don't have any meaning today. I begin to think to myself, you know, listen, this is not a message of cursing the nation of Israel. Please don't misunderstand me. We are to bless God's people. But understand this. Any people, whether Jew or Gentile, will be cursed for all eternity if they don't submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and believe that He is the Messiah and that His sacrifice on the cross is the only way of salvation. And so listen. You can go to the synagogues here in Roanoke. The temples here in Roanoke or in the state of Virginia, or the United States, or anywhere in this world. And if any person who calls themselves a Jewish person is still living underneath the Old Covenant, they are not a regenerated child of God. The high priest in the Old Testament and the priest all served as a picture of the work of Jesus Christ. I like verse number 10. Verse number 10 speaks about the Reformation. 
in our modern mindset, when we think of Reformation, we think about Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses of the Catholic Church back in the 1500s on the day of Halloween. But I want you to understand this, that the Christian Reformation didn't begin there with Martin Luther. The Christian Reformation began when Jesus Christ died on the cross. Notice here in verse 10, it speaks about the, until the time of Reformation. He said, all these meats and drinks and diverse of washings and all these carnal ordinances, they were imposed on them until the time of Reformation. The greatest Reformation our world has ever seen is when Jesus nailed the sins of the world to his cross. That is the Christian Reformation. Today, understand that God designed the old covenant to be a temporary, imperfect way of picturing Christ's perfection. Remember, redemption in Christ frees us from our dead works to serve the living God. If you think that your baptism is a work that's going to grant you access to God, it's a dead work. If you think your work of, of, of church membership is going to grant you access into the presence of God in heaven, it's a dead work. If you think your sacrifices of the Old Testament law system are going to get you access to God and His Word in heaven, it's a dead work. Any other way outside the work of the cross of Christ is a dead work. If you think that if I go and I pick up a guitar and I take lessons and I learn it so I can lead people in worship or the piano or any other instrument, listen, that alone is not going to get us access to God. Only Jesus can get us access to God the Father. Any other work is a dead work. So church, let us stop heeding to the dead works of the flesh and mankind and let us heed to the sinless, perfected work of Christ on the cross. And that leads me to verses 11 through 14. The second thought I want to relate to is this. God designed the sacrifice of Christ to provide us eternal redemption. God designed the sacrifice of Christ to provide us eternal redemption. Remember, verses 1 through 10 is all about the perfection of Christ. Now, verses 11 through 14 is all about the redemption found in Christ. Look at verses 11 and 12. It's in these verses we read about how the blood of Christ provides complete access to the heavenly holy of holies. Look at verse number 11. I, I really love the usage of the, the first two words, but Christ. We see how the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing the first five verses, the work of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, and then the next five verses, the work of the priest in the Old Testament and the high priest. And then he says, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. That's not made with the hands of mankind or the flesh of men, but it was made by the handiwork of God. That is not of this building, the Bible says. Now check out verse number 12. It says, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Let me ask you this question. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's imagine we are a Jewish believer. We believe the promises of the future Messiah that's going to come. And we're sitting there. And we ask our father, who is a Jewish believer, a question at the dinner table. We say, Father, why does the high priest go into the Holy of Holies only once a year? Why does he have to sprinkle blood on that mercy seat once a year? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
And I'm glad you went back in time to ask that question. Because the reason why the high priest did that is because the high priest is a picture of the great high priest. And then the blood is a picture of the great high priest's blood. You see, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies for just a little bit of time, and then he sprinkled the blood and he got out of there. The great high priest, Jesus Christ, went into the Holy of Holies of the cross, if you will, and there, he was there for just a brief amount of time, and there he sprinkled his blood upon the cross to pay for the penalties of this world's sin, and so that we could have complete access to God the Father. You see, if if a Jewish person who's not a Messianic Jew, that does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if they're still trusting in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, they do not have complete access to God. They have an incomplete access to God. And today you can have the earthly holy holies. I'll take the heavenly holy holies. Then it says here that Jesus has obtained eternal this word eternal, it means forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That is no ending, no beginning. And then redemption. This word redemption, just imagine, imagine if you will, we go back into the period of America or the period of history, uh, whatever period or whatever culture it is, because most cultures have had a form of slavery at some time. But imagine you're a slave. Imagine I'm a slave and I'm at the marketplace and I'm being sold off to an owner to own me so I can work for them. Well, that's what redemption is. It is God Almighty stepping in and buying us out of the marketplace of sin so that we can serve Him as a child of God. And I want you to understand this, that you will never, ever, 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 ever be free until you become a slave and a servant of Jesus Christ. And you, we have two choices. We can either be a slave of Christ or a servant of Christ, if you will, or a slave of sin or a servant of sin. The choice is yours. Pick. I submit to you that if you choose sin over the Savior, you will regret that decision in eternity. But if you choose the Savior over sin, you will never, ever, ever regret that decision. Notice verses 11, excuse me, verses 13 and 14 now. We see how the blood of Christ provides complete access to the heavenly holy of holies. But then in these last two verses, we see how the blood of Christ provides complete success in cleansing our weak consciences. The blood of Christ provides complete access in cleansing our consciences. Perhaps here these, these believers here, these Jewish believers who believe the Messiah was Jesus, perhaps they had, a, they had a conscience that just couldn't get away from the old system that they grew up in. It was their tradition. It was their way of life. They, their fathers and their mothers were Jews. They went to uh, the synagogue and they worshipped and, and there they, they, they were all about the Old Testament law and then when Jesus comes to fulfill it all and to say, hey, it's all done away with, I'm sure that they had a great temptation to step back into those systems. But here, we see verse 13. It speaks about how no matter the level of our consciences, God can cleanse us and purify our conscience. Look at verse 13. It says, For with the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through, eternal, through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to the living God? Notice the word purge that's found 
in verse 13, or excuse me, the word purge in verse 13, excuse me, verse 14, I'm sorry. This literally means to cleanse, to make clean, and to purify. We see the word purifying of the flesh. It just means a ceremonial cleanness, a purification process. So we see that the word purifying and the word purging, those are synonymous words that the writer here is using to try to emphasize his point that that purge your conscience. And this, this term conscience just simply means that, that our co-perception, our moral consciousness, that is our, our sense of right and wrong, how that God can give us, He can wipe it all away, that what we know to be right and wrong, to, to understand that what God says to be right and wrong. And here we need to understand this. That God can wipe away our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ and it only. So the question he says, how much more shall the blood of Christ purge us from dead works to serve the living God? Here, I believe that, that this, the, the writer of Hebrews is really brilliant. And he's, he's setting the stage, of course, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So maybe that's why he's so brilliant. And in verses 1 through 5, he's emphasizing the tabernacle. Verses 6 through 10, he's emphasizing the work of the priest. And then in verses 11, 12, 13, 14, he's driving home a point of how Christ fulfills it all. And then how we should lay aside these dead works because we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ to serve him for our li- with our lives. So redemption in Christ frees us from our dead works. To serve the living God. I love how the writer here emphasizes the living God. Because the only God that's worth worshiping is the God who's still alive. The only God worth worshiping is the living God of the Bible. Because He is the true and living God. Yes, Jesus died. But aren't you glad He rose victoriously from the grave? Not only did He redeem us through His blood, but He rose victoriously from the grave so that we could escape the damnation and condemnation in hell. So, my question for you is simply this. Which kind of guitar do you want to play? Do you want to play the guitar that you first started on playing? Or do you want to play the fresh, new amazing, awesome, luxurious guitar. Of course, I'm not really meaning guitars here. I mean, do you want to, do you want to use, do you want to live underneath the old covenant ways? Or do you want to live underneath the new covenant ways? I submit to you that, it, that if you call yourself a Christian, if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, we understand the Old Testament is directing us to Jesus Christ and that we need to live underneath the new promises and new covenant that God has given us. The superior covenant is the new covenant. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith, 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, 
If you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.